Hi everyone and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight we're talking about core vaccines every horse needs. It's sponsored by Zoetis, which recently launched its Core EQ Innovator vaccine. The American Association of Equine Practitioners recommends vaccinating every horse against five diseases, West Nile virus, Triple E, uh, WEE, tetanus, and rabies. These diseases are serious and deadly, but relatively easy to prevent. To help us understand these diseases and how vaccination protects against them, we're joined tonight by Dr. Elizabeth Davis, who is department head and professor of equine uh, internal medicine at Kansas State University's College of Veterinary, Veterinary Medicine, and Dr. Jacqueline Boggs, who's an internal medicine specialist and equine technical services veterinarian with Zoetis. Welcome to both of you. Well, welcome. Hello, Michelle, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's a great, it's a great evening and exciting topic to talk about. Thank you, Dr. Davis. Thank you as well. We're happy to, I'm happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Dr. Davis, we're going to start with you. Can you tell us about your interest in equine disease prevention, which is a, a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. Um, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I, my research interest is in the field of equine immunology, and so it really dovetails very well into infectious disease protection. So I think the immune system is the center of all well-being and um, being able to prevent disease is an exciting part of that. And Dr. Boggs, can you tell us about your experience with equine vaccination? Sure, so I'm a boarded internal medicine specialist and so my passion is infectious disease and I practiced for 10 years and then joined uh, an animal health pharmaceutical company where one of my responsibilities is supporting uh, the vaccine line, so vaccine R&D, research and development, as well as um, bringing, bringing new products and solutions to market. Okay. So for everyone who's listening, I want to do a quick review of the Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have questions that you'd like to ask live or you'd like clarification on a response from one of the doctors, you can go ahead and enter that in the chat window in front of you if you're listening to us uh, via your computer. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. Dr. Davis, um, before we dive into everyone's questions, I want to start out by asking you, what do we mean when we talk about a core vaccine and how are these core uh, diseases or the, the core vaccination guidelines created? Yeah, it's a great place to start. So. The core vaccines have been designated by um, the classification of having core vaccines is designated by the American Veterinary Medical Association. And so the AAEP or American Association of Equine Practitioners has adopted that practice. So they support that practice. So when we talk about equine specific core vaccines, we're talking about diseases that are basically devastating to horses, so can create life-threatening illness or are responsible for human health hazard risk. And so that's why the list of core vaccines uh, includes diseases that we want to prevent that fall into those categories, such as equine, uh, Eastern equine encephalomyelitis, Western equine encephalomyelitis, West Nile virus, tetanus, and rabies. So, Dr. Boggs, uh, the next question I'm going to give to you, and so when we're talking about core vaccines, we also then have risk-based vaccines. So, can you clarify for everyone what the difference is between those two, and maybe point out a couple of these risk-based uh, risk vaccines that a lot of our horses get that don't actually fall under that core definition? Sure. So, as Dr. Davis said, the American Association of Equine Practitioners has outlined these core diseases that she mentioned, and then there's a group of what we call risk-based diseases. And so these really are dependent on the potential exposure to the horse, and that has a lot to do sometimes with their geographic location, so whether they live in the southeast of the U.S. or maybe in the west, and then also the potential use of that horse. So some of these uh, risk-based diseases depend on if you're a broodmare or a foal, or potentially if you're traveling, 
um, versus a horse that maybe isn't traveling as much. And so what I like to say is these diseases sort of, and, the, and whether you vaccinate for them or not, depends on a variety of factors. And so things that fall into this category, diseases that fall into this risk-based category include equine influenza, uh, equine herpes virus, strangles, um, rotavirus, leptovirus. So again, not all horses necessarily need to receive these vaccines, and it's best to really work with your veterinarian um, if you're unsure the, the potential exposure or risk for your horse for some guidelines there. And Dr. Boggs, I recently I've been uh, doing some uh, editing work around uh, the biosecurity topic, and I don't know why it had never really occurred to me, but it these vaccines or these diseases that are core vaccines aren't necessarily diseases that the horses are passing to each other. So it's not that nose-to-nose -nose contact at a horse show. It's really uh, things that you can't control, like mosquitoes that you can't stop from biting your horse. Is that, uh, am I correct in, in that understanding? Well, so, so the vectors um, or the, 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 the agents that, that may potentially pass these diseases, you're accurate. In the, in the core category, they are mosquitoes that tend to pass um, the diseases that cause neurologic disease. So equine, um, eastern equine encephalomyelitis, western equine encephalomyelitis, and west Nile would be primarily transmitted by mosquitoes and rabies is primarily transmitted by bats and wildlife. Um, that isn't part of the definition between core and risk, but that is a, a good observation on your part. The influenzas and strangles and things like that can really be transmitted horse to horse. Dr. Davis, our next question is for you, and it's from Michelle in Montana. And she wants to know, how do vaccines work, and why do some vaccinated horses still get sick? Sure. So. Really, the premise of vaccination is the, the um, idea of exposing the immune system of the horse to a small version or um, such as an inactivated form of the potential pathogen or the organism that could cause them to become sick and let the immune system see that organism, if you will, in an inactivated form or a portion of it that well represents it. Um, so that in the event when that host, that horse, um, is exposed to that organism, the immune system is what we call prime. It has seen it before, and it is ready for attack. It is ready for clearance of that organism at the time of challenge. So the idea of vaccination is intended to provide a very safe way in a small level um, of exposure to that immune system so that on future exposure at the time of potential disease challenge, that force is protected. And so then why do some vaccinated horses still get sick if they have been primed to, to fight a disease? So although this is the mechanism to prime the immune system and have it prepared, it's not a perfect system. It's a little bit like when we get a flu vaccine in the fall months, and yet sometimes people may still get sick. That could be for a variety of reasons. It could be that the vaccine is a very appropriate vaccine, but when the individual got the vaccine, perhaps they weren't completely healthy. So there may be what we call vaccine breaks, and that may be because of the host or the horse in this context. It could be because of the vaccine maybe not being perfect. But um, there's something that has overwhelmed the ability of that horse to be protected, and so the challenge is very strong, and um, that individual may succumb. But vaccination, especially for the diseases that we're talking about, is one piece of helping that individual to be well protected. And when we're thinking about that, we do want to think about getting that vaccine when that horse is as healthy as possible so they respond very well. And Dr. Davis, we at the horse cover a lot of outbreaks. Um, anytime there's a reported case of West Nile virus, we report on it um, for our audience. And there seem to be some themes with the horses that do get West Nile virus, and it's that either they're unvaccinated uh, for the disease, they've um, the history is unknown 
of whether or not they've been vaccinated or the owner vaccinated the horse. What is it about those things that put a horse more at risk for getting a disease like West Nile, um, if, especially if an owner is doing their vaccination? It's a great point, and we have seen a real upsurge in West Nile cases this mm -hmm. year. Um, and so one of the things that we have to recognize is that vaccine itself is very carefully prepared. It went through a very rigorous approval process, and it needs to be handled very carefully. And oftentimes, if a vaccine is not handled properly, it will become inactivated. And so, for instance, if a vaccine is purchased through the mail or at a, maybe a supply store, it's possible that what we call the cold chain has been broken. It has not been maintained at the proper temperature. Some other handling may have been inappropriate. So that well-meaning horse owner that purchases that vaccine and they administer it according to the instructions on the label, it's likely that before they even got that vaccine, there was some mishandling inactivated that vaccine. Okay. So it's probably not the fault of the vaccine itself. It's how it's been handled from the time it left the manufacturers. Is that my understanding that correctly? Yes, that, that certainly is an important component. And then the other part is that the horse was properly vaccinated. So that's where a horse owner working with a veterinarian to ensure that when that horse is started on a vaccine protocol, such as a young horse getting the first series of West Nile vaccinations, they get the proper number of vaccines, and then in subsequent years, they get vaccinated at the proper time of year, so they are well prepared at the time of challenge. Yeah, it's definitely easy to think that you did that vaccine last year, and it was three years ago. <laughs> this time goes by so fast. Um, Dr. Boggs, our next question is for you, and it's from Amelia in Georgia, and she wants to know how long vaccines last, especially rabies. She said that the same dose is given to dogs and cats for uh, for a one to three year range, whereas with horses, it's recommended the horse gets vaccinated every year. Right. Great question. Um, so first of all, one thing I want to clear up is that while we might be vaccinating for a similar disease in different species, it's really important to realize that a, that a vaccine that's manufactured and labeled for a specific species, such as a rabies vaccine with a horse label, may be very different than a rabies vaccine for dogs and cats. And what's required to actually have a product labeled for that individual species is for um, <clears throat> for the work to be done in that same animal. So what that means is that the product is developed and a certain number of horses would be administered the vaccine and certain number of horses would not be administered a vaccine or considered a control group. And then um, by law, by the USDA guidelines, a certain number of horses that were not protected get sick and a certain number of horses that got the vaccine need to be fully protected in order to, to get that actual license. And so what happens is that we evaluate our, the horses for that period of time frame that we say the vaccine will last and protect, and that's called duration of immunity. And so for these um, core diseases, we have vaccines that have a duration of immunity for one year. We do not have data in horses currently that support that the vaccines that are labeled and administered to horses will last for three years. We have that data in small animals, and right now, until we have that kind of data, which we may or may not ever have, um, because we have to remember that they're different biologic species. A cat and a dog and a horse are not similar. Um, but until we have that, it's, we really want to be careful to vaccinate regularly, like Dr. Davis was saying, on schedule, because you have a break or you maybe go two years or three years with West Nile or rabies. You're going to put that horse at potential risk because they're not going to be protected against um, the diseases that, that that vaccine is meant to protect for. So it can be confusing, especially with rabies, as more and more, you know, small animal owners understand that, that we have products for three years. But at this point, we don't have those in the horse. And rabies is 100% fatal, and it's potentially a zoonotic disease. And so really isn't something to be messed around with in terms of, you know, maybe we ought to just wait and go three years in, until we really have firm data to support that. 
we have a couple of follow-up questions from our live audience. Dr. Davis, I'm going to give this one to you. It's from Charlotte, and she wants to know how long after a horse is vaccinated does it take before they're protected from that disease? That is a really good question. So if we're talking about the primary series, um, so a young horse that's just getting started on the vaccine, when we give one vaccine, within about two weeks, we're going to see a an initial increase in the immune responsiveness against the organism. Um, so that would be the earliest at two weeks. In about another two to four weeks after that initial vaccine, the horse is going to get a booster vaccine. And about two weeks after that vaccine, then the horse would be considered protected. When a horse gets a booster vaccine, we're going to also expect that after about two weeks after that vaccine, that that horse should be protected. Our other uh, follow-up question is for you, Dr. Boggs. Vicki wants to know, how do we know that the vaccine that our vet is using has been properly handled? They receive it by mail also, so how do we know the chain of handling has been done properly? Well, great question. Um, and again, to dovetail on what Dr. Davis was saying, the less potential movement of product we have, because it does come from, from a manufacturer and it, and it gets mailed to a veterinarian or to a horse owner or to a store, the least amount of those kinds of uh, movements that we can have eliminate, uh, decrease the amount of risk, right? That there might be a break. Secondly, is that uh, veterinarians are well-educated in knowing how to properly handle and administer vaccines. And they know that the, the proper temperature to store them in, they'll probably um, you know, have thermometers in their refrigerator and they know exactly where that, that perfect kind of storage um, temperature is in their, in their refrigerator. And so, again, you know, there can always be a break, but um, veterinarians are educated on how to, to properly handle and also to properly administer. And another thing that Dr. Davis was saying is ensuring that that horse is healthy at the time of vaccination. And so an advantage of having your veterinarian handle that product as well as administering it is being able to do a physical exam on the horse at the time, you know, taking a temperature, making sure that's a healthy horse that we're putting that vaccine in. So that immune system has the best opportunity to respond to vaccination. So again, nothing is a perfect world and uh, there can be breaks at any time, but um, certainly um, veterinarians know and, and that's their, their specialty, right? That, that being able to handle products and, and receive them and, and put them in the, the horse at the healthiest and most ideal time. Uh, Dr. Davis, our next question is for you. It's from Justine in Oregon, and so we're going back to the rabies topic. She wants to know why is the um, rabies vaccine needed if there aren't rabies outbreaks in your area? Yeah, well, it, it is understandable that this would be a question. Um, and rabies is maintained in the environment. It's maintained by different what we call reservoir hosts. And um, it is true that in Oregon, it is maintained in the bat population predominantly, um, but there are other animals that certainly can get exposed because of that bat population. And so for that reason, even in Oregon, the recommendations are to maintain, say, small animals, so dogs and cats and even ferrets, they need to be vaccinated for rabies because of the potential for exposure. And again, we can have other wildlife that get bitten or scratched by those bats, and then they can develop disease and, and spread that disease. So similarly, even though it is not common in Oregon, it is still present in Oregon. And because horses live outdoors all the time, um, there is always the risk for exposure even to a bat. And because of the close association of people with horses, we want to maintain those horses um, being properly vaccinated so we don't have horses get sick and we don't have the potential for human exposure to a sick animal. Dr. Boggs, our next question is for you. It's from Kaylin in Montana, and she wants to know who can administer a rabies vaccine? Great question, and this sort of um, a little bit dovetails on the conversation we've been having around veterinary-administered vaccinations. Um, in this case, rabies is, for the majority of states in the United States, is required by law to be administered on or under the supervision of a veterinarian. So 
While the other four core diseases, it might be ideal to have your veterinarian administer them. We know that, that a horse owner certainly can. But in this case, um, the, the government does require that rabies be handled um, very carefully and be administered by a veterinarian. And so uh, that does put it in a little bit of a unique situation as compared to some of our other equine vaccines. Dr. Davis, our next question is from Tammy in Wisconsin. And Tammy wants to know how you feel about checking blood titers prior to doing a rabies vaccine. Sure, and it's understandable that people would ask the question, do horses have to have a rabies vaccine every year? <clears throat> and I would go back to Dr. Fogg's comments, um, which are extremely helpful in terms of the regulatory process for development and approval of vaccines. So we have to follow the recommendations for the approved product that is available and licensed. In addition to that, I would say further support comes from the AAEP recommendations for core vaccines for horses, which does strongly recommend that rabies vaccine be administered annually. When it comes to titer testing, um, this is a, a question that often comes up um, in this context, and the, the, it, I know this is a little bit confusing, but when we look at something like an antibody level in circulation, which is what we are actually measuring when we do a titer check on an animal or even on a person, um, we can measure how much of that specific protein is present. That amount of protein may indicate that there's a good likelihood for protection, but it doesn't automatically mean that there is protection. So it's a bit of a suggestion of whether or not that individual is protected. And um, so if we measure these animals and we say that they have a certain titer, it may suggest that they are protected, but it's not absolutely certain that they are protected. And um, in the context of rabies, again, going based on the, the approved label recommendations and um, the AAEP guidelines, I strongly encourage that um, annual vaccines are administered to adhere with those guidelines. Dr. Boggs, our next question is for you. It's from Patricia in Ontario, Canada. We've touched on this with the rabies topic, um, but this is specific to tetanus. She wants to know, why does a horse need a tetanus shot every year when people only, only require one every 10 years? She says it makes no sense to her. <laughs> sure, and again, uh, totally understand how this can be confusing. And we, we do need to remember, as we talked about with rabies, that uh, the biologic systems are very different, right? So we can extrapolate some things from species to species, but what works in the human body is not necessarily going to work the same in, in our equine um, systems. And so what we need to do is really look at a couple of things. One, what is the duration of immunity or what is the duration of coverage that is provided for um, by the vaccines for that labeled species? And so we know, and again, like Dr. Davis was saying, the American Association of Equine Practitioners, these guidelines that we refer to have been established by a group of expert panelists, expert veterinarians who are specialists in immunology, vaccinology, um, infectious disease. They really understand these disease processes and say, you know what, based on the products that we have available in the marketplace uh, for horses to vaccinate for, we really need to, to vaccinate every year. Another thing I want to point out about tetanus um, specifically and horses in general you know, horses live in a dirty environment. Horses uh, get injured. Horses are more commonly going to be slice their leg open with barbed wire or step on a, a rusty nail or places where they can get exposed to the bacteria that causes tetanus. The Clostridium bacteria um, reside in the soil and then get access to a, a horse uh, through these types of wounds. You know, people live in a little bit more of a protected environment, not that we don't potentially, um, you know, have these types of injuries, but we aren't rolling around in the soil uh, where Clostridium is necessarily and necessarily <laughs> hurting ourselves and exposing ourselves the same way horses are. So sort of two different reasons. One, you know, very different vaccines for horses uh, versus humans, but also the exposure um, is, is much greater for a horse than, than potentially for humans. So Dr. Boggs, when we're talking about tetanus, like as a horse owner, I other than 
my horse is being vaccinated for it every year. I just don't think about it um, until maybe I step on something or get bitten by something and, and go get um, uh, my tetanus because I can't remember when the last time I had it was. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the clinical signs of a horse with tetanus? Like it's not something that I've ever seen and I don't know how often it comes up, um, but what does that look like? What would an owner be looking at if, if their horse did get tetanus? Sure. So as I mentioned, the transmission is really primarily through a wound, a puncture wound or a laceration, some kind of exposed tissue. The Clostridium bacterium gains access to the, uh, the horse's immune system. And the clinical signs um, are sort of a neurologic presentation, but they look very different than the other three neurologic um, encephalitides that we've mentioned. Um, it, it causes a, um, a, para uh, a rigid paralysis. Um, horses can become very stiff and erect. Um, uh, they can have a, a very prominent uh, clinical sign. We call it a pathognomonic sign, which means it's very characteristic of this disease. And that is a third eyelid prolapse. So that third eyelid that horses have that move from the, the nose or the middle of the eye across the eye, that um, eyelid can just sort of stay up and, and half covering the eye. That's called a third eyelid, eyelid prolapse. They can have muscle spasms, convulsions, and ultimately um, potentially result in, in death due to um, asphyxia because of the, the diaphragm um, basically becomes rigid and um, muscular contraction happens. It's not a pleasant disease, um, so hopefully you will never see it in your life. Yeah. Um, our next question is from Colleen in our live audience. Dr. Davis, this one's for you. She has miniature horses, one of which is very small. She says, over the, other than the risk of overdosing due to an error in estimating weight, are there some vaccines that are known to be problematic for minis? Also, is it within reason to request a smaller needle gauge to be used on a mini? Using a regular needle gauge had caused her uh, tiny mini a lot of pain. Dr. Davis, what do you, what do, you do with these special little guys? <laughs> right. Um, this is a, another really important point. Um, it, it does go back to our um, approved vaccines and the guidelines based on the USDA approval, USDA approval process. So we use the vaccines. A miniature horse is still a horse. And so in order to adhere to the labeled recommendations, we use the doses um, based on those, on those labels. And um, it is understandable that to use a larger gauge needle would be more uncomfortable. And I think it's a great idea to go ahead and use smaller gauge needles which would be less uncomfortable for the miniature horse. Um, but as far as the vaccines themselves, we, I would recommend that she work with her veterinarian if there's something like a stiffness in the neck after administration, um, especially with maybe a, a multivalent vaccine to maybe separate those out, um, but still to administer using the proper dosages for those approved vaccines. Dr. Davis, we have another question from our live audience that I'm going to give to you. It's from Roxanne in New Jersey, and she wants to know what side effects horses can get from being vaccinated. So horses, similar to people and other animals, um, when I describe what we're trying to achieve with a vaccine, um, if you can imagine, it's a very careful balance. We're trying to stimulate the immune system so that um, when that animal is exposed to that organism, it is well protected. Well, the immune system has many wonderful things that it does, but um, in some cases, a stimulation of the immune system can cause a little bit of soreness, a little bit of discomfort. So it's not uncommon that even with everything going very well with vaccination, that after you know the, the same day, the next day, we might have a little bit of tenderness in the area where that vaccine was administered. So similar to having that horse healthy at the time of vaccination, we want to plan for that next day to at least be a quiet day. Um, if there is work, it's light work, maybe just a little turnout. Um, but that would be normal to have a little bit of discomfort at the site, um, maybe a slight increase in their temperature. Again, these are all indications that the immune system is being activated. If there's anything more significant than that, um, then I would encourage individuals to contact their veterinarian to have that further evaluated for potential complications. 
Uh, our next question is for Dr. Boggs. Uh, it's from Beth in Idaho, and she wants to know, do horses need all of these vaccines even if they never leave your property? Great question. So again, let's go back to those definitions of core diseases versus risk-based diseases. And for the core diseases, I would say yes. Uh, based on the AEP guidelines, these are diseases that are really um, things that horses can get exposed to those vectors, whether they leave the property or not. Mosquitoes can, you know, bats, wildlife are going to potentially move on and off the property. And so that's sort of the definition of core, what every horse should get vaccinated for every year. So again, those five diseases, the Eastern equine encephalitis, Western equine encephalitis, rabies, um, tetanus, and West Nile. The other diseases, the risk-based diseases, are really ones, work with your veterinarian on what is their risk level if your horse does leave the property. So if your horse is traveling to horse shows, your horse is commingling at ropings, um, you know, your horse is interacting on breeding operations, boarding farms, then they may be at more risk for some of those risk-based diseases. But when it really comes to if your horse really, truly never leaves the property, um, yes, they could still be at risk for those five core diseases and really should be vaccinated to, to provide them the best, you know, healthy opportunity every year. So Dr. Boggs, our next question is from Marcia in California and it touches on, her question touches on the same topic of the, the five diseases. She wants to know, should we only be worried about these five diseases and, and have these five vaccines given per year? Or do you recommend that others be given during the year? So a similar kind of question um, to, to what I just responded to. So yes, um, and again, in alignment with the AEP, as well as the fact that these five diseases are, um, you know, have a high mortality rate, anywhere from 50 to 100%. Um, they have rabies as a potential zoonotic concern. Um, and even if the horse recovers from these diseases, they're they're, you know, they have a high, uh, what we call morbidity. So they're really not pleasant diseases. So Yes, for those, every horse should get in the, in the you know, uh, once a year. The risk base, it really depends, again, on, on what your horse's risk level is. Is your horse showing? Is your horse in a trailer? Is it moving? Is it commingling with other horses? And if you're unsure, I would really recommend you work with your veterinarian um, on, you know, hey, of these risk-based diseases, which is my horse at risk for and, and which ones I, ought I vaccinate maybe once, maybe twice. Sometimes influenza you're vaccinating even more than once a year for. So again, I'd really encourage people to, to work with their veterinarian. They, they know these um, diseases inside and out and they know the vaccines and, and should be most helpful for, for helping you out if you're unsure. Dr. Davis, our next question is for you. It's from Pamela in British Columbia, Canada. She wants to know, is triple E and WEE vaccination for all horses or necessary for all horses, or is it disease, is the disease area specific? For example, uh, triple E is in the eastern, um, east part of North America, uh, and you know, WEE would be on the west. So why do we need to vaccinate all of our horses for these two diseases? Right. And it would be nice if we had um, I, it, it so the the question is um, makes very good sense and it certainly is understandable that these designations of these diseases are very specific and it would be wonderful if the diseases and the vectors um, followed those same sort of guidelines if you will as far as nomenclature um, but it's unfortunately not that clear and so we don't only have eastern on the east coast say east of the mississippi we can see it in other areas it's not as common but it can occur and so again going back to dr boggs's comments on the impact of these diseases being in some cases nearly 100 percent fatal um, a, a disease like triple e that horse even if it would recover it's never going to be normal again um, we don't want to deal with that. We don't want our horse to have to endure that. So in order to provide protection, we do want everybody to be vaccinated for both of those pathogens. And there is even another one, in, in, uh, including the Venezuelan, that for horses that are in southern Texas, for instance, um, that it even might be recommended that they have an additional one to protect against a different form of encephalomyelitis. So 
really important to be proactive and try to keep them well protected. So we often talk about those three diseases together, Dr. Davis. Are the clinical signs and chances for recovery the same for all of them? There are some slight differences, but by and large, these are very, very devastating diseases. Um, they do have high morbidi morbidity, meaning a lot of horses could get sick, especially if they are naive, and high mortality rates. Um, Eastern and Venezuelan would actually be the highest in terms of mortality rates, um, but nonetheless, we need to really protect against all three of them. Dr. Boggs, our next question is for you. It's from Margaret in California, and she wants to know, should the West Nile virus vaccine be, be given in the spring and fall if there's been significant cases in her area? Great question, and uh, Dr. Davis alluded to this earlier. This year, we've actually seen a, an increase in the number of West Nile cases being reported in horses already this year. And so it really is recommended as a spring vaccine, uh, an annual once a year. However, the AEP um, does provide some guidelines around um, horses that are living in endemic areas, you may consider vaccinating twice a year for um, not only West Nile, but uh, the other encephalomyelitis. So particularly in the southeast part of the U.S. where they don't have freezing, um, they, the, obviously the mosquito population is potentially available year-round. Um, it is much of a, a, a practice to vaccinate twice a year for those um, vaccines in some parts of the country. Uh, and so potentially, I, I, know, I note that you're from California, so that, that may not be um, as much of a recommendation. Um, you know, however, it, it may be a consideration uh, to, to boost your horse in the fall if, if there's a higher uh, population of West Nile cases um, or, um, you know, an opportunity for your horse to, to be exposed for a longer period of time to that mosquito population. So yes, potentially you might want to consider doing it twice a year. So for where I live, we had the freeze last night that kills all of our plants for the winter. So that happened. Um, so is that the same kind of freeze that will eliminate the mosquito population or could those little guys still pop up and put our horses at risk? Yeah, I think at this point, since it's in September, it's still borderline time of year. I mean, we see the highest number of West Nile cases really in August and September. Um, and while we are getting some cold snaps across the country. Um, until we get a really hard freeze, I probably wouldn't necessarily trust the first freeze. Um, so hopefully your horse is already vaccinated for West Nile. It probably did, did knock down the population of mosquitoes some, but there's gonna be some hardy ones that uh, potentially have you know survived. So um, probably wouldn't feel totally comfortable until we get that hard freeze and it killed them all off. Yeah, we had a really bad mosquito year this year, so um, I will be glad to have them all gone. <laughs> I am <laughs> ready for that freeze. Uh, we have a question from our live audience. It comes from Dr. Fox, who's in Wisconsin. Um, Dr. Fox uh, wants to know if a horse arrives at her practice area, um, is five years old and has no history of having a series as a baby and only annual vaccination since arriving here two years ago, how do, does she proceed to make sure that this horse is protected going forward? Oh, oh and uh, Dr. Boggs, do you wanna take that one? Sure. So if I understand you correctly, the horse has been regularly vaccinated within the last two years? Just yeah, to clarify the question. Yeah, so my understanding from reading it, and Dr. Fox can uh, chime in and clarify um, if if she's still listening. Um, so it sounds like the horse arrived and got vaccinated, but there was no history of it getting that initial series. Okay. So when in doubt, if you're not sure of a vaccination history, it's never a bad idea to um, to do the two you know, to do a booster, um, just because if it's been, even in an adult horse, a five-year-old would be considered an adult horse, if there's been a leg of, you know, a, a one or two or three years, we would almost consider that horse naive, even though they, you know, have had seen the vaccine at some point um, historically. I, I'm going to tip this to Dr. Davis when I'm done talking and see if she agrees with me, but I would say it's usually probably best to cover your bases and be sure and, and go ahead and booster that adult horse. Now, the, the difference is rabies. Rabies does not need to be boosted. So if you know that horse um, has seen rabies in the last year, um, 
that that doesn't need to be boosted or even if that if it's a naive horse it doesn't need to be boosted but the other uh four diseases uh, it's probably not a bad uh, recommendation if you could go ahead and booster it would you agree with that dr davis or would you say something different yeah no i would completely agree i think it's always good to be on the safe side and we want to ensure that we get that really strong secondary immune response and that's the best way to achieve that so, Dr. Davis, what recommendation would you have for someone who is maybe buying an older horse from an auction where there's no history on, on the animal? Do you start from scratch? I, I would start from scratch, exactly. Um, again, to be on the safe side, and if somebody kind of knew that they were selling a horse, especially in that sort of a situation, they might have backed off on some of the expense they're putting into that horse um, I think that the safest thing to do is start with that series of an initial vaccine followed by a booster and working with their veterinarian to um, have an ideal protocol. Okay. Um, Dr. Davis, we have a question from Carrie in our live audience. She would like to know if vaccines should be given one at a time or spread out. Well, that is an understandable question, um, and it does depend a little bit. Um, I think we have a lot of opportunity right now as far as vaccines that are available. Again, going through the approval process to have a USD-approved licensed vaccine that is on the market, they have demonstrated safety and efficacy. And so what that means is that it is safe and efficacious to use what we call a multivalent vaccine. And for some individuals, that is the best way to go. The veterinarian is out doing some other things. We can get that one vaccine and cover, say, the core vaccines that need to be administered, and that works very well. Um, in some unique situations, we might need um, to split vaccines up for one reason or another, but by and large, um, that is the whole point of the approval process is that is an appropriate way to vaccinate that horse and have it be protected. Uh, Dr. Boggs, our next question is for you, and it's from Doris, who sent her, her question in via email. Doris has a question about four- and five-way vaccines, so I'm hoping that you can help clarify for us a little bit. She wants to know if it's safe for horses to be vaccinated twice a year with a four- or five-way vaccine. She said her horses had a five-way vaccine in April 2018, and it's just been requested that they do another vaccine that includes flu and rhino. Um, they were told that it was okay to have the second set as a booster. Uh, she just want to make sure that she should go ahead and give another four or five way to to her horses. So um, in, in answering this question, I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about what we mean by a four and a five way and the importance of knowing what your horse is actually being vaccinated against with those vaccines. Right, great, great question. And I think that this is a potentially a, a source of confusion when we talk amongst ourselves or uh, horse owners are talking to veterinarians or even veterinarians are talking to veterinarians is when we use um, the language like four and five way that may be unclear as to what is actually in that vaccine because as Dr. Davis said there are there are multiple manufacturers that um, have multiple different types of vaccines that create some flexibility for veterinarians and horse owners which is nice but it can create a little confusion when we talk about them and so a four way may include you know these four different diseases that you're protecting for, but another company, that four-way may be very different. And so I think it is really important as a horse owner to understand what your horse really needs. So this is the, the point of this, this webinar today, to really talk about those five diseases. Those are the core diseases. There is a vaccine that contains those five diseases that um, my company is just launching, Core EQ Innovator. But there are other products on the market that are called five-ways, that may not, they may not, you know, they may have flu and rhino in there, or they may have a variety of different things. So it's really important to know what diseases you're vaccinating for, um, and and you know, having that conversation with your veterinarian or, or knowing actually what's in the product is really important. To answer your question, what does your horse need to be boosted for? If your horse, if truly got the five core diseases in the spring and does not live in an endemic area like the southeast where you might need to booster those and you're giving flu rhino, potentially in the fall, the only thing that your horse may need is a flu rhino booster. However, is it 
safe for that horse to get some of these other antigens again? Yes, it's safe. It may not be necessary. It may be sort of over-vaccinating, but it's certainly not unsafe. Um, and so, again, I would encourage you to know what, what are the antigens that are actually in there and then identifying what is your horse at risk for and what, what do you need to protect from in the fall? So I hope that helped clear up a little bit that question. Okay, thank you. Um, we have a question, Dr. Davis, from Kathy in our live audience. She wants to know, at what age should a foal be vaccinated if his dam received core vaccinations approximately one month prior to foaling? Well, that's a great question as well, and that's perfect management of that mare to have her boosted before the foal is born. Then the foal gets excellent quality colostrum, and that foal has really good protection against those pathogens um, until about six months of, of age. And so um, consistent with the AAEP guidelines, um, we want to start vaccinating um, at roughly six months of age and identifying what uh, pathogens we need to vaccinate that individual against um, are going to be based on the location and working with the veterinarian. But again, let's say just the core vaccines, we want to go ahead and start at roughly six months of age. Uh, and Dr. Davis, our next question is also for, for you. It's from Donna in Louisiana. She wants to know if stress from vaccination can cause a horse to have hoof rings or abscesses. Um, sure. So this is an interesting one. Um, and I think it um, is one that brings up the issue of, uh, is there any potential downside of vaccinating? As I mentioned earlier, um, we are stimulating the immune system. And so by stimulating the immune system, um, we want to do that in a beneficial way for that horse. Um, sometimes we do get a little bit of an exuberant response. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes a horse will have something like a fever. Um, I mentioned earlier, they may have a slight increase in temperature. Normal temperature for a horse is 100. I wouldn't be concerned at all if the horse had a temperature of 101 or 101.5 the day after a vaccine was administered. We went ahead and intentionally stimulated that immune system. But sometimes horses might have a temperature a little bit higher than that that would truly classify as a fever. And horses can develop um, what we call rings on their feet for a variety of reasons. And once in a while, that can happen because of something like a fever response. So it's possible, it could have been the vaccine, it could have been something else, but something caused that horse to have um, a, a pretty strong physiologic response and that horse had those rings develop. Um, in terms of the abscesses, and when we talk about the rings with the abscesses, um, I would say this, this horse possibly has some problems with its feet um, that may need to be evaluated a little bit but a vaccine alone would not be responsible um, for causing any sort of hoof abscess formation or anything like that. That sounds like that could be a hoof problem and working with a veterinarian to examine those feet would be important. Dr. Boggs, we have a question from Dale in Illinois. It goes back to the, the risk-based va uh, risk vaccines. I think we've kind of answered it, but I'm going to go ahead and give this one to you anyway, just because I think we're going to get a really clear answer on it. Uh, Dale in Illinois says, so can I go ahead and skip uh, vaccinating for EHV1 and EHV4? Well, as you mentioned, um, those really are in the category of risk-based vaccines. And so this discussion today um, is not meant to discourage you from um, potentially vaccinating your horse for risk-based vaccines, uh, but rather to really clarify what are those core diseases. And I think we've gone through that several times. What's the definition of core? And by that, we mean those five diseases that have a high mortality, high morbidity, and we have really good safe products on the market that really every horse ought to get every year. That's the recommendation. No, we're not suggesting that you need to skip the rhinopneumonitis, but it really depends. Is your horse traveling? Is your horse commingling? Is your horse, as I said before, going you know, to ropings or reinings or dressage shows? Um, then your horse would be at risk. And therefore, um, yes, that would almost be something you'd want to have in your protocol every year. And again, is it once a year or twice a year or, or maybe more? That's something I'd encourage you to work with your veterinarian to understand what is the risk that your particular horse has. But if your horse is moving and traveling and commingling, 
um, then it probably really does probably need an influenza as well as a rhinopneumonitis vaccine. Uh, Dr. Davis, the next question is for you. It's from Lisa in Ohio. She says that over-vaccination of animals continues to be a hot topic, uh, especially for horse or for animal owners. Uh, what is the AAP's discussion around vaccine vaccine frequency and tighter testing? Right. I know this is an important uh, topic that is discussed on multiple levels and multiple ways. Um, the primary aim of vaccination, obviously, is to help protect against disease. The last thing that we want to do is overdo a good thing or cause problems with vaccination. I think the AAEP has effectively um, looked into that issue with the panel of experts that um, helped to uh, make the recommendations and, and the final decisions on what vaccines um, are included in the core panel, as well as in risk space, and the protocols, meaning the frequency of administration. Um, so when we look at the potential of looking at tighter testing, for instance, to help make those vaccine decisions, I think we have to be very cautious. Um, again, going back to my comments about titers earlier, just because an animal has a titer doesn't automatically mean that that animal is protected. And although we have the most information about titer testing for a disease like rabies, even having that doesn't mean that if that horse has an adequate titer, or that individual has an adequate titer, it's automatically protected. Um, similarly, but even to a much um, larger degree, for other vaccines, we do not have assays, tests that are readily available to measure titers in horses and specifically to measure titers that say at a certain level, if we exceed a certain level, this animal is definitely going to be protected from the disease. Therefore, the animal doesn't need to be vaccinated. We do not have that information um, for our equine patients, for our equine um, animals, but um, that information is available for some species, but not for horses. And so my recommendation still remains the same, that we need to follow those recommendations um, from the AAEP guidelines. Dr. Davis, our next question is from Debbie in Idaho, and she wants to know if her horse is better off receiving the West Nile vaccine uh, as part of a combination vaccine or single. And um, another really good point, I think that, um, it depends a little bit on the situation, um, but we do now have a vaccine combination in the um, equine core um, multivalent vaccine that contains West Nile and very appropriately so, so that one vaccine can protect against everything. Um, if we um, were in a situation where a horse had not been previously vaccinated and we needed to give them the initial vaccine and then a booster, that might be a reason to split that one out, at least to get the animal started. Um, if we had a very high risk situation, such as hot weather, lots of mosquitoes, um, conditions that many of us encountered a month ago, um, and maybe an older horse um, that maybe didn't have an optimal immune system, and we really wanted to boost that horse for that specific um, disease, we might consider it. So in unique situations, we might at least consider it, but we do have a very nice option as far as providing core vaccines in one vaccine right now. Dr. Boggs, uh, this next question is for you. It's from Gail in Florida, and she wants to know for compromised immune system horses, like ones that might have PPID um, or Cushing's, is the pro protocol different than when you're vaccinating a otherwise healthy horse? Great question, um, and there's a lot of research that's happening right now for us to really understand uh, older horses, horses are living longer, um, cushionoid horses or horses with PPID. And so what we know is that age in and of itself is not a disease. And so just because a horse is older at this point, we are not um, making recommendations for um, any vaccines to be different in those geriatric horses. 
Now, your specifically, your question is around uh, Cushing's or PPID, and those horses, yes, they do have um, a, a compromised immune system. And so first and foremost is making sure that that disease is well managed. So working with your veterinarian on um, what are the current protocols and recommendations for treatment, um, helping that horse have as strong of an immune system as possible. Um, but that horse should still be able to, if that, if that um, uh, the PPID is well managed, be able to mount a response to vaccination. So this is a hot area of research, and I think we're going to learn more um, as we as we study this more. But for right now, the recommendation, the vaccine protocols are not different for older geriatric horses um, than for our, our middle-aged adult horses, if you will. So same vaccination protocols, but certainly working with your veterinarian and to stay up to date on um, as we learn more in this space, you know, things may change in the future. So. Dr. Boggs, I know um, in my job, I hear a lot of different questions from horse owners about vaccinating um, more fragile older horses. And the arguments tend to be around, well, my horse has been vaccinated his whole life, and so he's probably immune and fine. And or there's the um, the he's uh, has Cushing's and he's sick and maybe it's going to cause him more problems because he's old if I vaccinate him. But then I look at um, for humans, like when it comes to the influenza vaccine, it's actually the seniors who are a fragile population who need more protection um, because they're more likely to um, to get really sick um, or even um, die from something like influenza. So when we're looking at our horses, should we consider this, uh, a, a, an analogy between um, humans and horses that we actually would want to protect them more because they're old? I've always, that's something that comes up and I'm always like, I'm not sure about this. Right. Well, and as I mentioned, it's, it's really um, an area where there's active ongoing research um, in this space because our horses are living longer and um, there's things that we don't completely understand about um, how their immune system functions. But there has been some research that's um, been done, and, and what we know now is that older horses are capable of mounting an appropriate immune response to vaccination. And um, again, looking at titers in serology, as Dr. Davis has mentioned, we, we don't necessarily assume that they're fully protected, but looking at their serologic response, they're responding similarly as maybe middle-aged horses, so 10 to 15-year-old horses versus 20 and, and up. They're able to uh, respond similarly. The, the true test is really a challenge where you challenge those animals um, with uh, the actual disease. And I don't believe that that work has been done yet. So I think you know, we will learn more in the future. But at, what we've seen so far in the research and the data is that um, you know, older horses that are not unhealthy, they're just older, are able to mount an appropriate immune response. And probably, if anything, we're going to lean towards, as you said, maybe vaccinating them uh, more frequently. But I certainly wouldn't back off and say, well, they've gotten vaccines their whole life, and therefore they should be well protected because um, you know, th those vaccines, especially the core vaccines, have a one-year duration of immunity in horses. And we certainly wouldn't assume just because they've gotten them for 10 years, now all of a sudden that that immunity lasts longer. So my recommendations at this point, and, and again, following the AEP guidelines until we learn more that would potentially change our recommendations, would be um, and to do them annually and, um, and again, really manage those other diseases so that you can ensure you're giving a vaccine to the healthiest that your horse can be, you know, managing those you know, additional diseases. Okay. And that's good nutrition, good parasite control, you know, managing the PPID, all of those things. All of us that have those older horses, we love them. So <laughs> take good, good of course, care of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, as we wrap up, um, we only have about a minute left uh, before I need to let uh, let both of you go. Um, but I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Davis first, do you have one takeaway that you really hope the audience has gotten from tonight's conversation? Um, well, I hope that everyone understands uh, what it means um, to vaccinate against core, va using core vaccines and the importance of those core vaccines. And when questions come up, 
to reach out and talk to um, your veterinarian, to talk to local veterinarians. The AAEP is a fantastic resource. The horse is a fantastic resource. And we're always learning more and we want to share information and we want to help people keep informed so they can keep their horses as healthy as possible. And Dr. Boggs, do you have anything to add that you hope that everyone takes away from tonight? Well, Dr. Davis said it very eloquently. Um, I guess I would just hope that you've, you've learned a little bit more about these diseases and um, the high morbidity and mortality and that, yes, we always want to do right by the horse. And as we learn more things, we'll update the guidelines. But these are really guidelines to help us, you know, ensure that we allow our horses to live long, healthy, happy lives. And um, certainly the vaccinating is, is much more economical and much better health practice than the other side and, you know, dealing with a horse that actually comes down with one of these diseases. Uh, Dr. Davis and I have managed, I'm sure, many of these cases between us and, um, you know, they're not, they're not pleasant diseases. And so um, certainly hope that this will encourage you to vaccinate for those core diseases. Well, for everyone who's listening live, our web producer, Jennifer, has posted a link into the chat for everyone, uh, a special feature that we put together, uh, core vaccines protecting your horses from five deadly diseases. Uh, you can click on that and take a, a peek. Uh, there's lots of really good information. It was a really a, an interesting piece to edit and put together um, for me. Um, Jennifer's also posted a resource link. We did an editor's pick top 10 resources for vaccination information. So go ahead and take a look at that as well. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for tonight. I wanna thank both Dr. Davis and Dr. Boggs for joining us. Well, it was our pleasure to be a part of the evening. Yes, thanks for having us. Also, I want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis, uh, and everyone who submitted questions and listened live to this event. Uh, please join us next month for Ask the Horse Live. We're going to be talking about navicular syndrome. Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night. <laughs>